And as we now come to your word, we ask, Lord, that it would accomplish your work in us, that it would conform us to the image of Christ, that it would give us a deeper understanding of you, a deeper understanding of the truth of your word. Oh God, use my weak and frail thoughts and words to communicate accurately your profound, unfathomable truths in order that we would grow in our strength, in our confidence, in our faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray for our children, Father. We pray that you would allow many seeds to be planted, that in due time will yield a fruitful harvest in our children. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be continuing our study of John chapter 8 today. We'll be looking at verses 28 to 32. John chapter 8, verses 28 to 32. This past week, there was news of two major uh, counterfeit busts. The first one was in Dallas-Fort Worth, where $4.3 million in counterfeit shoes were discovered, which included hundreds and hundreds of pairs of fake Nike Air Jordan shoes. And, and some of those shoes, uh, as, as you probably know, some of you probably know, they retail for as much as $2,000 per pair. The second report came out revealing that over the course of the first six months of 2020, Chicago O'Hare International Airport seized nearly 20,000 counterfeit driver's licenses. And of course, this being an election year, there's a lot of concern about that. One of the concerns being that fake driver's licenses could be used to commit voter fraud. These types of things, these counterfeit activities are, are very hard to stop. And as somebody myself who, uh, who sells name brand clothes on the side, I know that there are certain brands that are counterfeited frequently because they're worth a lot of money. And it can be really difficult for an untrained eye to spot the difference between what's counterfeit and what's real. Uh, one of the things I found in a storage unit this past year was what I, what I thought to be uh, a nice little Louis Vuitton uh, purse. But knowing that there are so many counterfeits out there because those purses are just crazy expensive. I brought it to a friend of mine who has a lot more experience selling that type of thing, you know, really, really high dollar items. And he was able to spot it immediately as a fake. And he was able to show me, to teach me, you know, some of the things that he looks for when he's looking for a counterfeit. And so now I, I think I would do a pretty good job of spotting a counterfeit Louis Vuitton purse as well. But anytime I find something that I know is at least potentially a very big ticket item, I'm forced to immediately remind myself that there are two kinds of big ticket items, real ones and fake ones, real ones and counterfeit ones. And you don't want to mess with the, the counterfeit ones. Not only is it unethical, but of course it's illegal. Similarly, preaching the gospel has always produced two kinds of converts. True converts and false converts. James Montgomery Boyce 
wrote this, and keep in mind that he wrote this about 35 years ago. He said, quote, Most people who listen to Christian preaching are, I am convinced, not genuinely born-again Christians. But neither are they hostile to Christianity. They believe the doctrines. It's just that they have never committed themselves to Jesus Christ and are not really His. They believe, but they are not disciples. They do not deny Christ, but neither do they follow Him. End quote. And I believe that Boyce is right on the money there. And the evidence for this phenomenon is found in polls and and in surveys that reveal what people who call themselves Christians, people who identify as Christians, actually believe about God and what they believe about Jesus, uh, you know, the Bible, Christianity, etc. Last Sunday there was an article that was published which started off saying this, quote, a new survey shows that the majority of Americans no longer believe that Jesus is the path to salvation and instead believe that being a good person is sufficient, end quote. Now, of course, that's just Americans in general. That's not people who identify as Christians. That's just Americans in general. The majority of Americans no longer believe that Jesus is the one means of salvation. But the article goes on to say that, quote, nearly two-thirds of Americans believe that having some kind of faith is more important than the particular faith with which someone aligns. Here's the important part right here. 68% who embrace that notion identify as Christians, end quote. That having some kind of faith, faith in something, is better than having a particular faith. And in an age when it's becoming less and less fashionable for people to identify as Christian, this is a deeply disturbing trend. Once upon a time, I mean, almost everyone would have identified as a Christian because they're American, or because they're members of a church even though they never go to church, or maybe because they were baptized once upon a time, or maybe they made some kind of profession of faith at uh, an evangelistic crusade or something like that. But those people who used to identify as Christians, even though they they clearly were not, by and large, now identify as nuns. Uh, As in, what faith do you ascribe to? None. A final troubling quote from this article said this. It said, quote, Slightly over half of Christian respondents said they believe someone can attain salvation by, quote, being or doing good. End quote. Now, of course, if you've read any part of Scripture, you should know that that isn't, that isn't biblical at all. And, of course, that's not Christian at all. Nobody attains salvation by being good or by doing good. We've all fallen. Thus, we all need grace. As we've been studying the 8th chapter of John, we've seen Jesus have this confrontation with the Pharisees at the Feast of Booths. A confrontation that actually started back toward the beginning of chapter 7. And while Jesus has promised that he will be going away, that's what he told them in the, in the passage we looked at last week, just as the Pharisees wished he would, he also said that he had much to say and do. He said in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. To the world. And then John adds a very interesting detail, an observation in verse 27. He tells us they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. That's the hymn in verse 26, right? But they didn't catch that. Jesus has been sent by the Father into the world with a message, with 
the gospel message. He's warned the Pharisees now, three times now, that if they will not believe in him, they will die in their sins. He has shared the gospel. He shared the good news with them. He's told them that they would die in their sins if they did not change course. And he's told them how to avoid that, how to avoid dying in their sins, and that being, of course, by believing in him. But what Jesus says next, the passage that we come to today, we should understand flows from that ignorance, flows from this lack of understanding that the people had, that this was something that Jesus was saying about the Father. And it will do what the preaching of the gospel has always done. What Jesus says in the passage we're looking at today will, will do what the preaching of the gospel has always done. It will produce some true converts, and it will produce some false converts. How do you tell the difference? That's the question, right? Jesus is going to help us understand that difference in our passage today. The point of this passage is that the preaching of the gospel has always produced two kinds of disciples. True disciples and false disciples. And therefore, we must examine ourselves to see what kind of disciple each of us is. So given the ignorance that we've already seen of the Pharisees regarding what Jesus was saying about the Father, we continue by reading this in verses 28 to 30. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now it's, it's really easy to get excited about that, right? When we read these verses, we see Jesus preaching the gospel, preaching the cross, and we see people converted. We see people believing in him. These people who had so stubbornly refused to accept Jesus' offer to follow him and receive living water, as he offered back in chapter 7, and and to receive the the light of life, as he offered back in verse 12 of of chapter 8. There's been a change that's taken place here. John tells us that they believed in him. I mean, I mean, just a few verses back, they were stubbornly resisting him. What made the difference? What, what was it that changed them from stubbornly refusing to all of a sudden believing in him? It appears to be that the difference is that Jesus preached the cross. That seems to be what made the difference. Jesus tells them that he would be lifted up. Indeed, he tells them that they would be the ones to do it. They'd be the ones to lift him up. And that when they did, they would know that Jesus is who he has claimed to be. Now, how much do you suppose, based on just what Jesus says here, he doesn't say a whole lot, but how much do you suppose these people understand based on what Jesus has said? Probably not very much to be honest. Probably not very much, but the beautiful truth of the gospel is that God can do a whole lot with not very much. But these words lifted up, they imply some beautiful and wonderful and and mysterious truths about the gospel. We should notice, first of all, that that this isn't the first time, and it's not the only time, that Jesus uh, has has used this, this set of words, being lifted up, talked about being lifted up. In fact, there are three total times that Jesus speaks of this throughout John's gospel. And every time he speaks of it, what's he referring to? 
He's referring to his crucifixion, right? So the first time Jesus spoke of his being lifted up was actually back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when Jesus was having his uh, conversation with Nicodemus, and he said to Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lift, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Do you see how those verses present a need? There's something that needs to be done. Jesus must be lifted up. The question is why? Why must Jesus be lifted up? And the answer is, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. In other words, if Jesus is not lifted up, eternal life would not be available to those who believe in him. So in in this first instance here in chapter 3, Jesus is emphasizing the necessity of the cross, the necessity of his atoning sacrifice, his atoning death on the cross. So why did Jesus have to be lifted up? I mean, one answer, if if you want to succinctly summarize it, one answer might be to save sinners. But a better answer would be because there's no other way for sinners to be saved. See the difference? See, no other man could die for sinners. It had to be a perfect man. It had to be a sinless man. And that is a qualification that only Jesus Christ holds. And and that's why he must be the one who would be lifted up. The one perfect man, the God-man, had to be lifted up as a sacrificial offering for the sins of all who believe in him because without an atoning sacrifice, those who believed in him would still have the burden of sin's debt on their own shoulders. Only, only by Jesus being lifted up on the cross crucified as an atoning sacrifice where he would take the sins of his people upon himself. Only there could that debt be paid in full and his people thereby be forgiven completely. And of course, it didn't end there. The story doesn't end there. He was also resurrected from the grave three days later to prove it, to prove that his people were forgiven, that his atonement was acceptable to God. The second time Jesus speaks of being lifted up on the, uh, being lifted up is, is right here, where Jesus says that these same people who will crucify him will also then know that he's who he's claimed to be all along. Of course, that is God incarnate. But do you see the implication that we find here? Do you see the implication that there will be a certain type of knowledge and understanding that can only be found if Christ is lifted up. It can only be found at the cross. See, it's at the cross where man's natural stubborn rebellion is overcome and conquered. At the cross, the mountain of sin that once prevented stubborn, sinful men from seeing the light of God's revelation was moved as if it were a molehill. Without the cross, that mountain of sin would prevent us from understanding anything. It would prevent us from ever receiving illumination regarding spiritual truths, which includes, of course, uh, but isn't limited to, Jesus' identity as Jehovah, God incarnate. 
and the third time that Jesus spoke of his being lifted up. That'll be found in chapter 12, verse 32, when Jesus' hour had just about come, and he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, uh, I will draw all men to myself. Now, when we get to that verse, we're going to have a lot to say about that one tiny verse when we get there. And I suspect that that's going to be one of those verses uh, that will demand an entire sermon just by itself, just the one verse. But there are some beautiful implications in that verse. And R.A. Torrey summarizes two of them uh, wonderfully. He says, first of all, quote, Christ crucified draws all men unto himself because Christ crucified meets the first, the deepest, the greatest, and the most fundamental need of man, end quote. And of course, what is that first and most fundamental need? It's a Savior. It's a Savior. We, we, we need a Savior. And on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus Christ was for all who believe in him. Tori explains the second implication of this verse, writing, quote, Christ lifted up on the cross, Christ crucified, draws all men unto him, because lifted up there to die for us, he reveals his wonderful love and the wondrous love of the Father for us, end quote. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And love like that, sacrificial love, when it's clearly seen, when it's clearly understood for exactly what it is, that type of love draws people. It humbles them and it melts their resistance. And of course, there is no greater demonstration of God's love, of Christ's love, or of any love for that matter, than the cross. So every time Jesus speaks of being lifted up, he's talking about his crucifixion. And that's not something that we can discuss or contemplate with an apathetic, nonchalant attitude. It's one of the most important things that a person can come to understand. And coupled with an understanding of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection of Christ, Christ lifted up is a beautiful and amazing captivating thing because it's necessary it's what God requires for our salvation it's the basis for true spiritual understanding and it conquers our hearts when God grants us true understanding of what exactly took place on Calvary and friends I do pray that that love has conquered every one of your hearts May you see and understand what Peter says of the scene of the crucifixion. In 1 Peter 2.24, he says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. I hope that makes perfect sense to you. I hope you see the beauty of that, the captivating love of God in the crucifixion. Now I'm sure that in this moment that we're looking at here in John chapter 8, I'm sure that in that moment as Christ preached the gospel, the good news of the cross, that God granted some degree of understanding to many. John tells us specifically as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. 
Now, here's what I want you to do. If you've got your Bibles open, and if you're the type of person who, uh, if you write in your Bible, you know, if you underline things, or if you circle things, or if you make notes in the margin, here's what I want you to do. Make note of one word here in verse 30 that makes all the difference, and which separates true converts from false converts. You ready for it? It's the word in. The word in. John says that many came to believe in him. Now, realizing that that word is is very significant, we have to remember that the preaching of the gospel has always produced two kinds of disciples. True disciples and false disciples. True converts and false converts. We've seen the true converts. What, What did they do? They believed in Jesus. Now we'll see that there were also many false converts in this scene. Let's look at verses 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now what what does John tell us about these people? These, he says, are people who believed him. Do you think there's a difference between believing Jesus and believing in Jesus, or believing on Jesus, as some uh, translations say? Oh yes, there is. There is a world of difference. What a difference just two letters in the English language make, three letters in the original Greek word ice. That word is so small, many people just breeze right over it. They kind of gloss right over it as if it's not there. They don't even notice it. And yet in the original Greek, the absence of that one word stands out very clearly in verse 31 as a contrast to what we just read in verse 30. These are people who believed Jesus, but they did not believe in Jesus. Now to demonstrate what an enormous difference there is between believing Jesus and believing in Jesus, consider what Jesus will say about these people who believed him but didn't believe in him just a few verses later. If you look down at verse 44, he says of them, he says, quote, you are of your father the devil. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to those who had believed him but who didn't believe in him. These are not true disciples. These are not true converts. They are false converts. They hadn't trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. They had just believed that some of the things that Jesus was saying were true. Is it possible for a person to believe many things, many things that are true about Jesus and yet to remain completely lost in the darkness? Yes. Yes, it is possible. It is. Tragically, it's not only possible, but it's been a reality throughout the history of the Christian church. Let's start with Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, the man who betrayed Jesus with a kiss on the night prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Did Judas believe in Jesus, or did Judas believe Jesus? Maybe some things that Jesus had said. Uh, It's clear from the testimony of Scripture that he never believed in Jesus. 
But given the fact that Judas Iscariot followed Jesus for three years, roughly, we can be sure that he did believe a lot of the things that Jesus said. He even preached the good news. He was even given the ability to perform miracles when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. But he never believed savingly. He never believed in Jesus or on Jesus. And for that reason, he was never a true convert. He was a false disciple all along. And this is something, this is a phenomenon that we've seen throughout John's gospel. John has written this account, he's written this gospel testimony so that his readers, that's us, so that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what he tells us in John 20, 31. But John also wants us to know, he also wants us to understand that there is a very real danger that someone will believe in a way that does not have the power to save. Starting back in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus was performing miracles and all these people were watching him and kind of being entertained by it and that they believed, but that Jesus nevertheless would not entrust himself to them. Why not? Because they didn't believe in a saving way. Because they they weren't true converts. They believed in a way that had no power to save. They believed in a way that kept them on the broad road that leads to destruction in hell. And immediately following that passage, remember we read the conversation in chapter 3 that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a representative of those people who had a belief, but not a saving belief. Now we have some some very good indications, I think, that, that Nicodemus did come around to, to believing in a saving way, but he didn't believe in a saving fashion when he came to Jesus in the darkness back in John chapter 3. Then we saw in John chapter 6, Jesus performs this incredible miracle of feeding 5,000 men and their families, and yet not a single person, not a single one, believed in him savingly. They're following him, but they're not following him, if you know what I mean. Two kinds of following, truly following and not truly following. They're following him falsely. But by the end of the chapter, chapter 6, we read that, quote, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore, end quote. And all that, all that remained, as far as we could tell, were the 12 disciples. So John is warning us about the reality of this possibility, This possibility of believing Jesus in a way that is not saving. Believing him, but not believing in him. Now when we talk about salvation, we talk about the importance of of knowing Jesus, right? Our mission as a church is to know Christ and to make him known. But listen, while that is very important, it's far more important that he knows us. Far more important than our knowing him is him knowing us. One of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture comes at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in, John, or in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, starting in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
Now let's stop there for just a second and address what is apparently a very, very important question for us to be asking, something that we should be considering. If the person who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of the Father, don't you think it's probably pretty important that we know what it is that is the will of the Father? So what is the will of the Father? The answer is simply that we believe in Jesus. Not simply that we believe a few propositions about him. Not simply that we believe what he says over here, but we kind of have a little bit of doubt about what he says over there. Not simply that we believe a few things about him, but that we believe in him. That's the will of the Father. Jesus continues, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now let's think about this for a second. When these people that he's talking about, when they stand before God, what is their plea? What is their justification, the basis of their justification? It's what they have done. It's their good works. These people thought they knew Jesus, but he didn't know them. And thus we can be sure that these people would be among those who believed Jesus, but they didn't believe in Jesus. There are many people who stubbornly and rebelliously refuse to come to Jesus savingly, who would say that they know Jesus. But far more important than our knowing him is him knowing us. And and what's clear based on what follows from this point forward in John chapter 8 is that these people, the ones who believed him but didn't believe in him, are not known by Jesus. They are children of their father, the devil. But I want you, I want you to see the heart of Jesus here. I want you to see his mercy. I want you to see his his compassion that he has even for those who don't believe savingly. He doesn't just leave them to die in their unbelief, to die in their sins without warning them and trying to encourage them to take the next step and to believe in him savingly. Instead of just ignoring them, which he would be just in doing, instead of just ignoring them, he turns to them and he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word. This word continue, it gets translated uh, you know, various ways throughout John's gospel. In chapter 1, verse 32, it's translated remain. Uh, In verses uh, 38 and 39 of chapter 1, it's translated stay. In chapter 3, verse 36, it's translated abide. We we see this word, the same Greek word underscored as a crucial test of the faith in, uh, in chapter 15, where it's once again translated as abide, when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, 
he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. It's from John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Just two verses. Jesus is using a grapevine to illustrate how discipleship works. And four times, four times in in just these two verses, he talks about the importance of abiding. Or as it gets translated here in John chapter 8, verse 31, continuing, continuing, abiding, staying with him. See, it's very easy for a person to be moved in a gospel presentation at, a, at an evangelistic crusade, for example, or maybe at a church service, and to make some kind of profession of faith. The question is, what happens to that profession when Monday morning comes? What happens when, when they leave that crusade or that church service? What about when trials come? What about when friends forsake you because they don't agree with your faith? There are many Many who will not abide when that happens. And then there are those who will. There are those who would say, whatever may come, I will never abandon my Savior. I would rather die than forsake my faith in Him because I believe and I am certain that apart from Him, just like He says, I am nothing and I can do nothing. See, the one who abides, Jesus says, is the true disciple. So based on what Jesus says here in John chapter 8, there's one factor that determines whether or not a person is a true convert or a false convert, whether they believe Jesus or whether they believe in Jesus. He says this, this is, this is the one factor. He says, if you continue or abide in my word. That's it. That's the difference. See, it's not enough to just be emotionally moved by a gospel presentation. It's not enough to say, well, I think Jesus is usually telling the truth. You must do more than believe him. You must believe in him. And the way to know if you're doing that is to examine yourself and to see if you are continuing, if you are staying, remaining, abiding in his word. I have a really good friend. He's the son of a pastor, and a couple days ago, um, you know, I, I was talking to him. He's, he's still a solid believer, even to this day. But he was telling me a couple days ago that very early on in his life, his father, the pastor, taught him that the way to know if something is true or not is to see what God's Word says about it. In other words, his father is teaching him at a very young age that every truth claim must be measured against God's Word. That's what it means to abide, to continue in his word. Now, in light of what Jesus says in chapter 15 about the branch of the vine, Richard Phillips notes, quote, We should abide in his word in the way that a branch abides in the vine. The branch receives its life from the vine and bears the fruit of the vine. Likewise, Jesus teaches, true disciples are those who find their life in his word and in that way bear his fruit. End quote. So these people that Jesus is addressing here, they're, they're not people who will bear good fruit. In fact, if you just go to the end of the chapter, you see that these same people who 
believe Jesus and who are getting this encouragement from Jesus to abide in his word, they're picking up stones and they're ready to murder him on the spot. These are not people who abide in him. These are not people who continue in his word. But the question that I have to ask you today is are you abiding in him as evidenced by the fact that you're bearing good fruit by continuing or abiding in his word? That's the real question, isn't it? How important is his word to you? How important are the scriptures to you? How central is the word of God to your life and how you see things and how you perceive things and how you act in light of what God's word says? Is abiding in his word at the top of your list of priorities in life? One of the ways to see if any good fruit is evident in your life is to ask a friend, ask somebody, is there good, is there good fruit in my life? Another way is to just look at the scriptures. Look at the scriptures. Measure every claim against what the scriptures say. That is abiding in his word. But it's also seen in, in examining our attitudes. Asking myself, what is my attitude toward things like church and worship? and the habits that I have that are, that are sinful. What are my attitudes toward these things? That's, how, that's one of the ways you see good or bad fruit and, and whether you're abiding or not. But here's the thing. We're talking about more than just behavior modification. We're not just talking about you know, some, you know, a new set of habits but the same motivation. No, we're talking about transformation here. We're talking about a change of heart, literally a change of heart, which results in a change in terms of the things that we value, the things that we love, and the things that we hate. Because many people, many people will make some kind of profession of faith at some point, but how many will actually abide? How many will continue in Christ? The truth is very few. Very few people abide in his word. The path is narrow. The grade is steep. The terrain is treacherous. But the true convert will nevertheless press on and persevere. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the perseverance of the saints. At least that's from our perspective. The preservation of the saints from God's perspective. Not just an initial profession of faith, but abiding, staying with him, continuing to walk with him. In the parable of the soils, Jesus illustrates this for us, right? He shows us that many will stop abiding because they've been lured away by the things of the world. But the good, the good soil produces a harvest. The true disciple doesn't fall away when tribulation comes. The true disciple doesn't fall away when they're persecuted. The true disciple doesn't fall away. They don't stop abiding because of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The true disciple perseveres and bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty, as Jesus explains in Matthew. Now what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that you won't sin. 
If you abide in his word, it does not mean that you won't sin. You will. It doesn't mean that your faith will not grow weak in some seasons or that your faith will never fail. What it means is that when you have those seasons, when you have seasons in which your faith grows weak, you will press on. You will persevere. You won't walk away from Jesus. You will continue. You will abide in his word. You'll return to the narrow path when you fall off. You'll return to that narrow path that Jesus leads you on, and you will once again be hungry for his word, which feeds and nourishes the depths of your soul. For those who abide in Christ this way, continuing in his word, persevering in faith in Christ by God's grace, Jesus says two things will result. First, Jesus says here, you will know the truth. How will you know the truth? If you continue in his word. You see that? What does Jesus mean? He means that the mind of the true convert won't be given over to a worldly way of thinking and perceiving because God's word, Christ's word, helps them see the futility of every worldly philosophy and ideology. That's that's one of the reasons I am so concerned for those who are preaching this social gospel stuff, the social justice gospel, which is a message that is essentially identical to the message being preached by the world right now, the message being heralded and celebrated by the world right now. If the world is celebrating a message, you can be sure that it is not the gospel. That's the message behind all the lawlessness that we see taking place in our culture right now, is the social justice ideology. See, lawlessness isn't a good fruit. Check your Bibles. Lawlessness isn't on there. In in fact, it's bad fruit. It's wicked. Lawlessness is antithetical to the gospel. It's satanic. And it's been embraced and heralded by a large portion of the modern church. That's tragic. It's heartbreaking because it's not based on what is true. And yet, the one who abides in Christ's word will know the truth. The reality is that the Christian life is one in which we progressively grow in the ability to discern truth from error because the Christian life abides, continues in his word. And the more you are exposed to God's word, the more easily you will be able to discern truth from error, similar to how someone who's exposed to to real Louis Vuitton items can spot a fake. And if you know what is true in the sense that Jesus is saying, you'll know Jesus himself, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. See, to know the truth is to believe savingly in Jesus. And that brings us to the second thing that Jesus says about those who will abide or continue in his word. And that is, first, they will know the truth, and secondly, the truth will set them free. The person who continues in his word, in the scriptures, will know the truth. And by knowing that truth, they will be set free 
Free from what? Well, to answer that question, I think it requires that we have an understanding of the fact that by nature, our will, everything about us, is in bondage to sin. Just as Martin Luther said, by nature, all we can do is sin, and even our best acts are motivated and tainted by sin. But Christ, and Christ alone, lived the perfect life. He didn't sin. Nothing he did was tainted or influenced by sin. And through his death, he sets us free from bondage to sin so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are made slaves to Christ. Truly freed. And as we are set free from bondage to sin, we're able to respond to God. And we're freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the fear of the wrath of God against us. We're freed from the power of sin knowing that by grace, God will welcome us into his presence one day where we'll be freed from the presence of sin. This is why we must, we must know the truth. And the way to do that is to abide in his word. And the true disciple will know the truth because they will not depart from the scriptures. It's the standard of truth against which every other truth claim is measured. Friends, I pray that that would be you. I pray that that would be you. We see that there are two kinds of disciples. So you want to be a true disciple? Abide in his word. Abide in his word and keep abiding. And when trials and tribulations come, keep abiding. And when other things in life spring up, keep abiding. And when governors tell us not to meet, keep abiding. By God's grace, press on and persevere. Because to, know, to, to be a true disciple is to know true freedom. So do not be lured away from Christ by what the world claims to be true, by worldly ideologies and worldly philosophies, worldly understandings. My prayer for you is that you would find the Word of God to be nourishing to your soul, that you would find the Word of God to be encouragement and strength for your hearts, wisdom for your minds, a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Because that is what it means to believe in Christ rather than simply believing some things about him. Examine yourself in light of his word. Cast away the dross and experience all of life in the freedom the true freedom that is found only by being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our most heavenly Father, we confess to you that were it left to us, we could not abide. We would be so captivated and so 
enamored and so drawn away by the things of the world. But by your grace, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit abiding within us, we thank you that we may persevere, that we abide. We remember, Lord, that we don't abide because of us, we abide because of you. And so we thank you for your grace in sustaining our faith, in giving us understanding of your word, and of correctly applying it to our lives. Father, we pray that we would continue to abide. And as the culture gets more hostile to your word and to our faith, we pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to continue abiding, no matter what may come. May we see Christ as the greatest treasure to be had, a treasure that we would sacrifice everything in life, including ourselves, to have. And we pray, Lord, for many, for many to hear your word and to become true converts who will abide in your word, that Christ will be glorified in the salvation of many. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.